today's passage is Matthew 26, uh, starting at verse 30, going on to uh, verse 46. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for an hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Morning. If you're with us for the first time this morning, we're journeying quite slowly through Matthew chapter 26 up uh, and through Easter. We're going slowly because we want to be attentive to the message of Christianity. Christianity says that Easter, Easter is when Jesus died for the sins of the world. And the question for all of us, whether it's the first time you're joining us this morning and whether you're a Christian or not a Christian is, if that's what Christianity claims, that Jesus died for the sins of the world, what does it mean? What does it mean? In this uh, passage that we're going to look at this morning from verses 36 and following, there is a claim at the start of that section that every thoughtful person who listens to the words of Matthew's gospel has to contend with. Notice the question that comes. People have been surprised by Jesus' emotional state, what he feels. And the question that comes to us is, why does Jesus feel like he does in these verses? Why is there a, a magnitude of agony that impresses itself like a weight upon Jesus' very soul and person? Why is there a, an, an immediacy of the agony that's almost overwhelming to the point of death? That's what Jesus says. And what does it all mean for us? That's where we're going to go this morning, looking from verse 36 to the end of that uh, section that Becky read for us. Why the magnitude of the agony? Why does Jesus feel it so intently, so immediately? And what does it mean? 
Let's look at verse 36 together. Why the magnitude of the agony that Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross on which he died for the sins of the world. Why? Why the magnitude of the agony? Look at verse 36. It says this. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, which is an olive grove. And he said to them, to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. So what that means is Jesus came to the outskirts of a garden of Gethsemane, this olive grove. He leaves most of the disciples uh, to one side and he takes his, uh, his inner core, Peter, James and John, with him. He says to the majority, wait here. But he says to Peter, James and John, I want you to come with me. There's something I want to reveal with you. There's something I want to share with you, an experience I want you to know and understand. But the surprise comes in verse 37. In verse 37, it says literally, taking Peter and the sons of Zebedee with him, what a lovely name, Jesus began to experience something. Jesus began, something began in Jesus's very nature and soul and personhood. A weight came upon him. He was walking on the outskirts of the garden to a place where he was going but before he got to that place with the three people something began to happen and the question that every thinking person wants to think about is well what was it what was Jesus experiencing at that moment that overwhelmed him what was Jesus feeling it says in verse 37 and verse 38, there's a, an overwhelming sorrow. That there's a torrent, there's a weight, there's an experience. There's a flooding of Jesus' heart with an agony, with a spiritual and mental anguish that's so strong that Jesus feels that he's sinking beneath its weight. Verse 38, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. To the point of death. It's as if Jesus is saying something has come upon me and it makes me feel as if it's going to kill me even before I get to the cross. I'm overwhelmed with something. I feel like I'm going to die under this pressure and weight and experience and force. And the gospel writers say it in different ways. If you go to Mark, it says that uh, Jesus, the Son of God, this is quite something. Jesus is astonished by what this thing is. Luke chapter 22, verse 44. If you turn to Luke's account of this moment in history, it says that Jesus, Jesus is sweating drops of blood. That's possible. It's uh, not normal, but it's possible, especially when someone is having a, a severe kind of shock, almost a panic attack that type of thing. In this moment, Jesus is overwhelmed with something, with sorrow to the point of death. There's something in an experience that is unique and unusual that's coming on the person of Jesus Christ so that he's utterly astonished by it. Now, just let that sink in. Jesus, the Son of God who knows all things, is overwhelmed by something. It's incredible horror an agony that is impressing upon him. 
And our passage tells us what that is. That feels in Jesus' experience like a, a huge tidal wave of agony, of magnitude of agony that he's feeling. Our passage tells us that what Jesus was experiencing in that moment, well, it says in the passage three times. We're told that Jesus is wrestling with his father three times with the magnitude of what will happen on the cross of Christ. He's wrestling with his father. Verse 39 talks about the cup. Verse 42, that phrase is said again, the cup. Verse 44, it's inferred to the cup. So three times, verse 39, 42, 44, Jesus is praying, he's wrestling with his father about the cup. Do I have to drink the cup? So the question then becomes, what's the cup? Throughout the Bible, the cup is a way that the prophets in the Old Testament predominantly describe the wrath of God against human evil. The settled, measured, appropriate wrath and justice and anger of God against all that is wrong with the world. I read a new way of putting it this week that I found very helpful. The cup is God's overwhelming declaration of truth, of justice, of truth. And Jesus is experiencing that even before the cross has happened. In ancient times, the cup, the cup was used to execute people. It was a terrible way of poisoning people that literally dealt with your inside. So you died from the inside out. You were poisoned with a, with a cup of wine, perhaps, that had poison in it. And, it. and it dealt with your inside and you were killed from the inside out in the most horrific, painful way. In the Old Testament, because that means of killing people was common, the Old Testament prophets of old, the Hebrew prophets, have taken this metaphor and have applied it to Jesus. It's a metaphor that's used in Isaiah and in the book of Ezekiel. You can look at it later to, to describe the wrath of God in terrible graphic ways. You can look at it in Ezekiel 23:33 and Isaiah 51. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, is experiencing, it's almost he's been taken to the brim of the cup and he can see its contents. And just in an awareness of what will be coming upon him on the cross, he's overwhelmed. He actually begins to experience God turning away from him in the garden itself. Let me just meditate on this for a moment. Jesus Christ, fully human and yet fully God, gains all his resources from his Father. All of his power and his grace and his love stem from, originate from, his eternal, satisfactory, glorious, deep, loving, doting relationship, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. This holy dance from all of history. And so it's very likely as he walked into the Garden of Gethsemane, to the place of prayer where he was heading. Even before he got there, he would be communing with his father. He would be praying to him before he got to the point of prayer, the location of prayer. He wouldn't have waited necessarily until he got to that specific point because he was communing with his father throughout his life and ministry. 
But in his heart, at this moment in Gethsemane, he would have turned to his father to pray to him like he's done all his life. And yet he would begin to experience something in that moment that he's never, ever experienced before. As he turned to his father to pray, to pour out his heart, to commune with him, to delight with him, rather than experiencing everything, for the first time in his life in ministry, Jesus, Jesus begins to experience nothing. He begins to experience and sense and feel an abandonment from his father that he's never known or experienced before. When he turned his soul towards his father, there was no one there. That's one way of putting it. He was expecting to experience the loving embrace and smile of his father, to know what heaven is like, and yet he experienced hell. He's beginning to taste and experience hell, complete abandonment from his father. His father is beginning to turn away from him, and so he's beginning to sense and experience forsakenness. Why the magnitude of the agony that Jesus is feeling? Because on the cross, Jesus took all the unrighteousness and appropriate justice against God's anger, against all that is evil and wrong in the world. But the very anticipation of that moment gives Jesus an overwhelming sense of death and abandonment. The Son of God is taken into shock. He's shocked when he wanted to experience something of heaven, he experienced hell. And if that's what he's experiencing in Gethsemane, just think what he will be experiencing when he's on the cross of Christ, drinking the cup of God's wrath to its very end for you and for me. So that means, you see, friends, that Jesus does not love us in a general way, not like a, I love you a bit. Jesus loves us in a specific, in a costly, in a saving way, in a rescuing way that no one's other love can just touch. Every other love we sense and experience is just a pale echo, a dim echo of the costly, not general, the costly love of Jesus and so look at what it cost him. Look at what Jesus did for us. Look at what Jesus took for us as he rescues us on the cross of Christ that we remember at Easter. Look at the magnitude of the agony that Jesus Christ experienced. And when you see that, verse 37, verse 38 of Matthew chapter 26, then a second question follows. If that's the agony... Why the immediacy of the agony? Why was Jesus feeling it to such a degree at that very moment? Why the immediacy of the agony? Now let me explain that a little bit more. In the garden, Jesus is experiencing, he's experienced the magnitude of the agony of God and it's as if he's experiencing chemo. Some of us have had cancer. It's one thing to understand that you begin, you need to begin to have a course of chemotherapy. You need to have some severe radioactive material put in your body to nuke the cancerous cells so that you might get well again. And sometimes that can be months, sometimes that can be longer period of time to hopefully eradicate completely the cancer. It's one thing to read a pamphlet that says you need to undergo a course of chemotherapy. 
but it's quite another when it starts, when the course of radiotherapy begins, when you begin to feel it throughout your whole person, when you begin to feel sick, when you begin to lose your hair and so on. Here's what Jesus is beginning to experience in the very moment of our passage. It's one thing to say you're going to do something, but Jesus now knows how it's going to feel. This is the way uh, an old Puritan puts it, Jonathan Edwards. Jesus Christ begins to taste the wrath of God in Gethsemane. God essentially brings him to the very cup, to the mouth of the cup of God's wrath, so that he might look in and see what's going on. And then here's the quote that you can see on the screen. When Jesus took the cup, knowing what was in it, so was his love to us infinitely the more wonderful, and so was his obedience to God infinitely the more perfect. In other words, Jesus didn't go into the cross unknowing what was going to happen. Because God led his son in the Garden of Gethsemane to the experience of what was about to happen so that he could look in. Jesus went in with his eyes wide open. He said, is there any other way for me to rescue a people for you, for your glory to be made much of and known and enjoyed throughout all the ages? I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'm willing to suffer to the uttermost. I'm willing to empty the cup to the very dregs for you. But in the garden, Jesus begins to see and sense and feel and have it impressed upon him the horror, the horror of his father turning away so that he could take our sins upon his shoulders. And in that moment, the immediacy of the pain and suffering that Jesus, the son of God, would feel on our behalf overwhelms Jesus. Because in the garden, Jesus does at least two things. He loves God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength. And he loves his neighbor as himself. These two great commandments. Let's think about the second one first. Look at the people Jesus chooses to die for. Peter, James and John in our passage. They're uh, representatives of the human race. They're representatives of you and me. I mean, Jesus doesn't ask much, does he? But three times... Jesus asks something that we can read this passage and think is quite straightforward. It's quite simple. I never asked you to do anything for me before. Perhaps Jesus is thinking, I just want you to stay awake with me so I don't have to face this moment of horror, of forsakenness alone. Will you stay with me so that I'm not alone? And sadly, three times, verse 39, verse 43, verse 45, they fall asleep and Jesus is left all alone. And here they are, the representatives of humanity, and we would have fallen asleep on Jesus just the same as they did. But in spite of all our weaknesses, in spite of their weaknesses that are representative of all of our weaknesses, Jesus loves us just the same. But that's not the only thing. He also loves his father and obeys him with all his heart, soul, mind and strength. Look at what Jesus does in this passage. This is the only time in the whole of human history that God asks someone to obey him to the point of death. What do I mean? God always says to us in the Bible, obey me, obey my will. 
And Jesus Christ, representative on behalf of all of us, says, Okay, I will. Knowing that I will not live, but knowing that in obeying you, I will die. Every other time in the Bible, we see Jesus and God the Father calling to us, saying, Obey me and you will live. Obey me and I will welcome you. Obey me and you will come like me. Obey me and I will reward you. Abraham, obey me, leave, and you'll become the father of many nations and so on. But this is the only place in the Bible, the only place in the whole of human history, when God says to a human being, his son, obey me, obey me and you will die. Obey me and I will send you to hell. You see, sin began in the garden. Now salvation is coming in a garden. Sin began when the first Adam disobeyed God about a tree. Don't eat from its fruit. But now salvation is coming when the second Adam obeys God about a tree. I mean, Adam was told, obey me about the tree and you will live. Just don't eat from it. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, is told, obey me about the tree and I will nail you to it. You see, in the garden, you don't just have a dying saviour, you have a doing saviour. If you think that Jesus Christ died for you and died for the sins of everyone who will trust in him on the cross of Christ, so that our sins are wiped out, you're absolutely right. Jesus died for the sins of the world. By that, the Bible means everyone who will trust in him. They're ransomed, healed, restored, and because of Jesus Christ, they're forgiven. That's right, but that's not all that Jesus did. He didn't just die so that our sins would be forgiven. If that's all that Jesus did, that means that we would still have to live a life that pleases God so that we have positive obedience, so that we would enjoy his blessing and love and enjoy a welcome of a faithful servant. But that's not all that Jesus did. He didn't just wipe out our sins of the past and give us a clean slate. Jesus did more than that. Jesus died so that our sins would be wiped out. That's called passive obedience. But he also died with active obedience. He lived a perfect life. And because Jesus died a sufficient death, but also he lived a perfect life, we've got nothing more to prove. We have a forgiveness that Jesus has won at the cross, and we have a righteousness, a right record that Jesus gives to us, that he lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death that we deserved to die. So that now as God the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus's righteousness by faith that's been given to us by his grace. In the garden, Jesus begins to receive what we deserve so that we get from God what he deserves. That's the amazing transaction of the cross. It's not just getting rid of our debt. It's us receiving all of Jesus's righteousness, his right standing because of perfect obedience and a beautiful life lived before God. And Jesus is experiencing and suffering under an ocean of the wrath of God that he begins to sense and feel and experience even before the cross in the garden of Gethsemane. And there has never been obedience like this and there never will be obedience like this. He's not just a dying saviour. He's a doing saviour. He's doing something on our behalf. But the question is, so what? If that's the agony 
the magnitude of it. It's so great because our sins are so great, but it's so immediate because Jesus is taken to the very edge of the cup before he drinks it, drinks it to its dregs on the cross. What does all that mean to us? Let's wrap up. What does it mean? It means all the difference in the world, of course. Think of it like this. If Jesus is just an example, if he is a model, I mean, he'd be a great model, wouldn't he? Be a model of three things, of integrity, first of all. Jesus on the, in the garden, he is a model of integrity. Let me put it to you this way. What are you like in the dark when no one else is looking? Where does your mind go? Where does your mouse click? How do you behave? Do you behave in the dark? Man and woman, boy and girl, teenager, older person alike. Do you behave the same in the dark that you do in the light? Do you behave in public the way you do in, in private? Is there any indifference between the two? There's not in the life of Jesus. Look at Jesus. He is a model of integrity. He is exactly the same when no one is looking than when he's before a crowd of people. He's a model of integrity, but that's not all. He's also a model of prayer. Model of integrity is also a model of prayer. Look at how um, emotionally honest Jesus is. He doesn't go to God saying, oh Lord, this is gonna be hard, but I'm praising your name. I know that I just need a bit of help and then I'll be fine. I can do this with a little bit of your help. Jesus is completely emotionally honest as he pours out his heart to his father. I don't want to do this, says Jesus. Is there any other way that you would provide for me? I want to honor you, but is there any other way? Because having seen from the brim the cost of people's sin that I will take upon myself, having seen and felt some of the wrath that I'm willing to take for my people is going to be horrendous and agonizing, but I'm willing to do it for you. And he pours out his heart. He is a model of integrity. He's a model of someone who depends on God in prayer. But he's also a model of love. He's a model of love. Look at, look at Jesus loving people who let him down. I mean, is there anyone who's fallen asleep on you? Is there anyone who's let you down in a moment when you really need them? And they've kind of fallen asleep on you, either literally or metaphorically. But because they've let you down, you've written them off. You've ghosted them. You've deleted them. You've blocked them. You've cancelled them. Modern terminology. Because they've let you down. You've pulled back from that friendship because they let you down and they need to know it. Look at how Jesus shows his love to people who have let him down. Three times the disciples fall asleep on the watch, literally. And yet Jesus loves them to the uttermost. What a model. What an example. Jesus is to, to be someone of integrity and prayer and love. But if that's all we see him as an example, he will crush you. He will crush me. If Jesus is just a model that we need to attain to and follow but Jesus is not just a model he is not just an example to follow he is the savior we need and he died on the cross as the substitute that is sufficient to pay for our sins and have them moved away from us and have them paid for and taken away from us as far as the east is from the west I've been thinking about this this week 
Why do I, why do you and I find it hard to trust God completely, utterly, fully in our lives? I think it's because I'm afraid that I don't think God has my best interest in mind. It's the first doubt that Satan put into our first parents in the Garden of Eden. Is God really there? Is he really good? Does he really care? And I don't think I trust God because I think there is a small part of my mind on good days and a big part on bad days that think God will not come through for me. I think that God is not good enough for me. He's not got my best interests at heart. And so I think I need to add to the obedience of Jesus Christ and I need to take some of the decision making on myself. I think I can do a better job than God. So I add something, I add some of my obedience to the obedience of Jesus that I know is perfect, but sometimes I feel it's not. But then the trouble comes when I let Jesus down. If I function like that and then I let Jesus down, I feel terrible. I am, I'm afraid sometimes that my obedience is not good enough. So then I, uh, I don't want to approach God in prayer. Or sometimes I, I feel that I'm going to wear Jesus out. I'm going to wear his patience out. I'm going to wear his love out. Because I think that I know a better way of running my life than he does. If that's you in either of those cases, if you think you can't trust God or you think that uh, I've let Jesus down too many times that I can't go back to him. Let me remind you of the gospel from this passage. It says that Jesus' love will never wear out. Look at the disciples again and again. They let him down again and again. Jesus pursues them with his love and is willing to die on their behalf and on my and your behalf too. He died to rescue. His love is so strong, it will heal absolutely anything. His love, his love is sufficient for you. Hell came down on his love on the cross and, and Jesus' love was sufficient. It was strong enough. It endured. He did not turn his back on you. And therefore he never will and nothing you can do will break his love for you. See, on the one hand, we think that uh, if Jesus could just heal us of the trust problem, then all would be well. On the one hand, if Jesus would just do this for me, then we could never doubt him. But how could you begin to just bargain with Jesus when you see the strength and the depth and the height and the width of his love, that he loved you to the uttermost, and he loved his father enough to obey him, even knowing that he would die on the cross for our sake and the magnitude of the wrath that needed to be taken. Friends, nothing you can do will break God's love towards you. This is the love that you've been after all your life. This is the love that you're after in every relationship, that no friend or even a Mother's Day gift it's just an echo of the love that you will find only in Christ and in Christ alone. Nothing will satisfy you like the love that God has for you displayed on the cross. And this morning I want to invite you to come afresh and meditate on the love of Jesus. See him dying in the dark for you. And when you see that, the right response is that you fall down and that you enjoy and adore him afresh. And when you fall down on your knees or in your heart or close your eyes and you adore him afresh, 
then when you get up, it will change you. And you won't just see Jesus as an example that you need to follow because that will crush you. You'll see him as the saviour who died for you in your place so that you might live in a new relationship and stand in his strength when you see the height, the width, the depth of his love for you.